John, and then at the end, we have these three short letters right before Revelation. We have first, second, and third John. We've spent most of, of 2019 so far working through um, first John. This morning, we are going to knock out all of second John, all right? So second and third John are actually the two shortest letters that we have in all of the New Testament. Um, and so we will do second John this week and third John next week. Um, partly because if, if we do not do them now, there's probably never a time where we would come back and hit these letters, right? And so we're going to kind of go on the tails of our time in First John. If you haven't been with us um, before or very often, um, our kind of tendency here is we just take a book of Scripture and we just work our way through it. Um, just verse, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, just kind of working our way through it. Um, sometimes what feels maybe too rapid, sometimes maybe you feel like it's a little too slow but trying to get a grasp um, of the totality of the book. We do that because we believe that all of Scripture is useful and beneficial. We do it because um, it's important to us that we would look at all of Scripture, that we would preach passages that typically we would skip. Um, It it honestly, it allows the Spirit to guide what we're hearing and learning and, and where He's guiding us more than if you were dependent upon me picking a topic every week. Um, that, that might or might not be relevant, that we trust that the Spirit is going to guide us through His Word. Um, in general, we try to alternate um, as often as possible between an Old Testament and a New Testament book. Um, and so once we finish the, the three John letters, we will actually be heading into an Old Testament book um, later on this month. So Second John is a little more of a typical ancient letter. You're going to see kind of a, an introduction um, of, of who's written it, who it's written to, um, a brief greeting, um, something they're grateful for. It's going to have a conclusion, right? This would have probably been a single sheet that would have been written. And so let's pick up in verse 1 of Second John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning. So you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes, a part, takes part in his wicked works. And though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. All right. So in this, this brief letter, um, we see the, who's, who's calling themselves the author. It just says, the elder right? So who's the elder? Um, The elder is the apostle John. 
It's, it's the author of the first letter. Um, John was an elder at the church in Ephesus. He's writing to a sister church in the area. Um, John was, it would have been arrogant to say, the apostle writes you, right? Because the apostles always said that they were one of the apostles. There were many apostles. Obviously, an elder can be a position in the church, but John is, is most likely at this point the last living apostle who is an elder, who is now an older man, is writing, and it's, 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 it's likely that he was just kind of known as the elder, right? He's, he's the one. He's the last one living, and he's writing now to them. And so he has this interesting phrase. He says, the elder to the elect lady and her children. So the elect lady and her children is actually a euphemism for the church, right? He's writing to a church. We don't know specifically what church um, in Asia Minor, but he's writing to one of the churches. And um, we know this because he says, look, the elect, we, the elder to the elect lady and her children. And then we see when he ends it, he says, I'm ri- the children of your elect sister greet you. So this is the kind of language we see sometimes in Scripture where the church is called the bride of Christ, right? It, it's personified as a woman. Um, we, see, the, we see the nation of Israel sometimes called in, the, in these feminine ways. We still use this language today. We talk about sister churches. That's our sister church, right? Um, and so as we do this, he is writing to a specific church. Now listen, why did he not say specifically which church? I don't know. We don't know if it's because perse- uh, persecution has ramped up or if he was just kind of doing the thing of the time and that this was a common vernacular. But he's writing now to a church. And so we see, listen, the elder is writing to the elect lady and her children. And he says, I, you know, I love you in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us will be with us forever. It's just kind of this idea of like, look, we're doing this together, and what binds us together is the truth of the gospel. He then says, grace and mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. And then again, we, we can see the conclusion that he says, look, I, I have much more I wish I could write to you in verse 12 but the children of your elect sister greet you. So we, just, we can see clearly that this is a, a brief letter written from John to a church that he knows, that he knows well, that, that knows him by his, um, his nickname here, the elder, that care for him, that, that would l- listen to what he has to say. And so this letter is going to be really direct as he is looking to hit on one kind of primary issue. He's going to remind them of one thing, and he's going to hit on one specific issue that they're facing. And it's an issue that, although maybe the actual form, the practicality of it is a little different for us, it's, it's a balance of truth and love, right? Which is an issue for the church even today, right? That some are accused of being far too loving, and that they, they abandon the truth in order to have a big tent and bring everyone in. And others are accused of loving the truth so much they just become jerks, right? And they're arrogant, and no one wants to be around them, and there's no love to be a part of them. And what John is really writing is he's like, there's, there's this needle we're looking to thread here of this balance, this beauty of truth and love. And they're going to look at it in specific, um, in, in practicality with one specific area that's going on in their church. But we know that this is still an issue for us as well. So let's pick up in verse 4. 
John writes, So I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children, meaning some of the members, right, some of the people of this church, are walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. So listen, we, we'll hear people talk often about, hey, we need to have a walk with Jesus. And he says here, look, some of them are walking, and I'm pleased to hear this, they're walking as we were commanded by the Father. And so what was the command? The command is this, it's, it's the gospel, right? That we are, we are called to trust and to know and believe that Jesus has been sent by the Father, that he's, he's done that so that he would reconcile, restore us, make us right with him. So he's come to live the life that we could not live in sinless perfection. He's come to die the death and to face the punishment and the wrath of God that would crush us. But because of his innocence and of having lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, he then beats sin and Satan and death and is resurrected today. That this, this gospel and Jesus, before he ascends back to heaven, says, look, so I want you to take this message, all the things that I've taught you, and I want you to take them throughout the world, making disciples as you go, that as you, as you baptize, you're teaching these things. He wrote in 1 John 3, verses 23, this, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he has commanded us. That the command is simple. It's to love God and to, to see him through the lens of Jesus as, as the Christ, the one that's come for us, and to love one another. We saw even in Mark 9 in the transfiguration as, as three of the disciples get to see kind of the heavens open for a minute, right? They get to see like Jesus in his full glory and they hear God say, like this is my beloved son, listen to him. Right, like that, that we have been commanded to see and to trust and to follow Jesus. So I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, right? The truth of who Jesus is, just as we were commanded. But look back now at verse 3. He says, grace, mercy, and peace, right? Three kind of church words we hear all the time. Will be with us. Typically, if you're looking at Paul's letters, he kind of has a prayer or like almost a wish here of here's something I'm praying for you, here's something I hope for you. But listen to how John says it. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. He's not praying, he's declaring. He's saying these things will be not just with you, but with us. Like that these things have been given to us. And before we move on from this kind of just pleasant sounding verse that feels very, you know, religious and, and churchy, would we be reminded of what it is that he is saying that will be with us? Grace. Grace, which is love to the guilty and the undeserving. Right? It, it's, it's, it's an act of kindness to those who do not deserve it and who are indeed guilty. Mercy. which is love for the needy and the helpless, the ones who cannot, affect, cannot fix their situation, cannot fix their circumstances. It's love towards those who are needy and helpless. And then peace. So he's saying, look, let there be grace, which is love to the guilty. Let there be mercy, which is love to the needy. And let there be peace, which is a restoration. Right? It's, it's a right relationship. It's harmony between us and God. 
And so the need for peace, the need to be made right and have peace in harmony with God, right, is salvation, right? We need to be saved from the wrath of God because we're not perfect, because we are sinful, all of us. Mercy, then, is our helpless need, right? Like, it's, it's the fact that we cannot make it right. There's no religious activity. There's no, there's no amount of money we can give. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. And so salvation is this need. Mercy reveals it, right, because we're helpless. And grace is the fact that it was given freely and undeserved to the guilty and the undeserving in Christ. And so what, what John is doing here is he's just succinctly saying, church, would we be reminded of who we are in Christ? That we were guilty, we were needy, we were helpless, and we were undeserving until God, through his love, was gracious and merciful to bring us back to peace with him through the person and work and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Right? That is why he can write this letter and say, we are bound together in truth because you have received this and believe it, because I have received it and believed it. That this is the truth that binds us together. So we cannot move quickly from that because he, he then goes into, listen, so I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. In what truth? In the mercy and grace and peace that God has granted Verse 5, and so I ask you, dear lady, he's saying, I ask you, church, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. He's reminding them that the call is not only to love and to know God, but it's to love one another. And this is love, verse 6, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard it from the beginning, that you should walk in it. So how do we walk in these things? Do you think it's, it's interesting that he doesn't say, hey, I write you these things so that you would believe them. But he adds, he says, I want you to walk in them. So walking has a couple, fa- a couple components to it. One would be belief, right? If we're going to believe in Jesus, then we're, we're going to follow after him because Jesus says, follow me, come this way. And so in order to, to do that, then we actually have to say, I believe that you're taking me somewhere and we begin to walk. We, we do believe these historical events. So part of walking in obedience is believing that Jesus came first born of a virgin. Right? That he came as the God-man. God in the flesh. Who then lived a life completely sinless in thought, in deed, and in action. Completely dependent upon God, honoring and faithful and trusting, right? That he was the God-man who then goes to the cross to provide for us atonement. He satisfies the wrath of God because he takes it upon himself. And so John is saying, look, we don't just believe some like just facts and some teachings and some creeds that are out there. He says we're believing in some historical events that one, that Jesus showed up. And then that he did what we could not do to restore peace. And then he went to the cross, right, in our place as our substitute. And then that he walked out of the tomb alive once again, not as legend, not as folklore, as historical fact. 
And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he will remain until he comes for his people. Right? There will be a day where he will split the sky and call his church home. And the dead in Christ will be raised. And we will be with him forever. He's like, these are the things that, that we believe. But we don't just believe them. We don't just affirm them as facts. We walk in them. And what that means is that we conform our lives to them. That we are transformed by the Spirit of God that is residing in us. We obey them. That when we surrender to Jesus, when we say, I believe that you have done these things for me, that you've given me the gift of salvation, now when he and I disagree, that I surrender my will and I obey him. Look, we don't do that perfectly. But walking in this is that we are beginning to be conformed and transformed more and more and more into the image of Jesus. It's trusting and it's following and it's believing and it's obeying and it's walking after him. It's seeing him as greater and greater and more and more. That as you spend more time in the word and more time with his people that you, and as his spirit reveals more and more that you would not say, yeah, I know all the things of Jesus that you would say, oh, It is a well I cannot get to the bottom of. That he is far greater than I thought, and I thought he was wonderful and beautiful when he rescued and saved me. Oh, he's far more than that. And I want more. And I need more. And I want to be more like him. I want to be known as him, his. I want to be marked as my father's. And so it's not simply a nodding and mere affirmation of belief, but it is the walking, the obedience after him. That he has called us to follow him into eternity. Which means that as, as John is calling the church to love one another, that we love as Jesus did and as Jesus still does. He's called us to this. Remember in John 13, in his gospel, in verse 34, which this was a defining moment in John's life. This is at the, the Lord's Supper, before the cross. In verse 34, Jesus says to the disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as, listen, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And so our expectation and the standard that's been put upon us is that we will love one another in Christ as Jesus has loved us. We have to think about, well, how has he loved us? He's loved us completely. He's loved us fully. He's pursued us. That he has taken his enemies, those who are far from him, who are wandering and doing their own thing, and he's brought them back. He's brought us into the family, and he's made us rightly adopted sons and daughters of the king. That he has made us his. That he is, he's loved not just with word of, I love you, but with action. It had, it had meat on it, Right? Like that he, he doesn't just say, I love you, I hope you believe it, but he shows it, he reveals it, and he's revealed it in the fact, right, that he spent 30 plus years on earth, that he went to the cross to pay a debt that we couldn't pay. It had definition to it, it had action to it, it had choice to it, that he chooses to love us and to pursue us. And so John is saying, look, we want to take this love and the truth of what we believe and they need to be melded together. So, without love, 
truth is weaponized, right? It doesn't make it less true. It just becomes a battering ram that beats people down. But listen, without truth, love just becomes really soft, right? And it doesn't really get us anywhere because it's not defined by anything. It's just like this kind of like blob. And so we love in truth, and we hold the truth in love. We, we see this in Christ, right? Then in John 5, he tells, he tells some of the Pharisees, he's like, look, you have been searching the Scriptures to find the Christ, and you've missed it. Not an easy thing to hear or an easy thing to say, but he says a true thing, right? Because they need to hear it. They need to know it. In John 8, right, we, we hear John, Jesus say to Pharisees, like, like, you don't follow the Father. You follow your father, the devil. Now listen, often when we think of Jesus, we don't think of these harder things that he said. And so what we need to see here is, is he's looking to meld these things together, that there's truth and that there is love and that we need them together. And we have to avoid the extremes. And so for some of you this morning, man, truth is easy for you. Like you will die for the truth, but love's the harder part. And then there are some of us in the room this morning that, man, we're, we're glad to love people, but man, don't make me say anything hard to them. Don't make me bring any truth into the equation. I just, I just want to love them, and, and God will sort it out. And, and both extremes are, are errors, that we need something in between this that would combine the two. That, this is probably... Um, I'll probably regret saying this, but here we go. Um, I, I can just imagine some of the... But we don't want to have like drive-by truthings, right? I see I already regret it. <laughs> but here's the thing is the church, this is what we're known for, right? We're supposed to be known for love. And what we're known for is here's the truth and I don't care how it hits you. I don't care how you receive it. I don't care that it just left like a gaping hole in you or blew your arm off. It's the truth. What are you going to do with it? And we stand feeling justified that we said the right and the true thing, and we have like just blown people away. Right? That's not what we're called to. We're called to combining truth and love. So listen, there are people on almost a weekly basis that let me say really hard things to them. And I want you to think about your life. There are people in your life that, that you would let say hard things. It's not that you want them to, but that you would let them say hard, truthful things to you. I've had men and women in my life who have said things that I did not want to hear in the moment, but because of who they were, I received it, and I dealt with it, and I chewed on it, and, and I, you know, I, I took the meat, and I spit out the bones. Why? What's the difference between saying something really hard to someone and them receiving it and doing a drive-by truthing, right? I can't believe I said it twice. Um, right, like what's the difference? It's, it's connection, right? It's relationship. And typically what that means is also is it's, it's you being present after the fact. Because when, we, when we're just going to throw out truth as we walk by and blow people away, it, we're usually leaving. We're gone now. And so we leave them to pick up the mess and to pick up their arm and to put it back on. But when we say hard things in love, we're not leaving. We're staying. 
and we're helping bandage them up. And we're helping them, right, stop bleeding. And we're helping remind them of who they are in Christ. And then we're helping them develop a plan of how are we going to walk forward from this. And I'm not leaving you. And I'm going to be here with you. And we're going to do this together. It's why one of the, the four dozen one another statements in Scripture is this, is that we bear one another's burdens. Right? And bearing one another's burdens is not saying, Carmen, i got some things to say to you, and then walking away. Saying, Here's some truth that maybe you don't know or that you haven't heard or that you've forgotten. And now let's do this together. Because I love you. So John is calling them to love one another in truth. Listen, you are going to get grief from both sides constantly. Because when you show truth, when you speak truth, people are going to say, oh, why are you so loving? You're too gracious. Right? And then when you go and love somebody, and they're like, oh, they need more truth. Why didn't you tell them the hard thing? Right? Like, the, you, you, if we're just honest, you can't win with this, okay? Because there will always be a side that's going, you should have given more truth or you should have given more love. And so it's why we need one another. And it's why we have to know one another. That, that even as, as we sit and have conversations about how we want to minister and to pursue someone, there there's, can be disagreement in the room as to, well, how much truth and how much love. And that what we're asking is the Spirit to God. Right? That, that temperament matters and, and where they're at in their walk with Jesus matters. And, and the depth of relationship with that person matters. And that we're asking the Spirit to let these hard things be heard in the manner in which they were given. Right, that's why Peter will say in 1 Peter, right, in his letter, he'll say that love covers a multitude of sins. Because guess what? You're going to get it wrong sometimes. And you're going to say something harsher than you meant to say it. Or you're going to he- hear something that's going to come across more as like, right, a gut punch than you intended. Right? But the love and the depth of the relationship will allow that relationship to survive. Because they know that it was given out of good intentions. And it was out of love. Listen, I could tell you some of the dumb stuff I've said to Carmen, right, that, was, that wasn't like an intentional hurt, but just like in naivete or immaturity or just sin. And she's still with me, right, because love like goes, okay, you were a moron right there, but I don't think you meant that as, as, as deeply as it came across. Um, so I'll, let me share one real quick. She literally just rolled her eyes at me. So <laughs> I think she's afraid of what's coming here. So um, <laughs> I'm in now, okay. Um, so before we went overseas, we were young college students, and we were talking about where overseas we were going to go one night um, in our little rent house on Kickapoo Street in Shawnee, Oklahoma. And Carmen as any 22-year-old might in the moment, was having some fear and some doubts of like, are we really going to go live overseas? And in my infinite wisdom, instead of like consoling her or saying, I have fears and doubts too, what I heard was, um, I'm not going overseas with you. That's what I heard. It's not what she said. And I thought, oh, she has lied to manipulate me into this marriage, right? 
right? Like that was my, like, she told me she's willing to go anywhere, and now she's not willing to go anywhere. And so like, again, right, in, in all of my infinite wisdom, I'm like, well, we'll just use a little scripture here. <laughs> right, like you know, right? Like you just, you know that that's not gonna go well. And here was the problem. Not only did I use Scripture as a weapon, but I used it as, I I didn't even do it correctly, right? It's like I was like doubly wrong. Because I didn't go to the Great Commission, you know, and like lay out this like guilt-ridden speech. She, because she had made the comment, what about, what about our friends? What about my family? And I said, let the dead bury their dead. And it went as well as you could have imagined. Like, as I'm saying it, right, like, I'm, like, going, no, like, trying to pull the word. Because, like, as soon as I said it, I'm, like, that wasn't even relevant. It wasn't appropriate. It wasn't a, a, a correct interpretation of the passage. And I, but what I had done is I had just taken my Bible and, like, just, like, basically, like, hit her upside the head. Right? Was not a loving moment. The, fa- the sad thing was it wasn't even a truthful moment. But what I had done was I had, tried to, I had tried to weaponize this to get what I wanted, to get the response that I needed from her. Um, we survived. We ended up overseas. Um, not a, uh, I, I still remember the look on her face, right? The horror, right, of that night um, in, in a lot of gory detail. Um, Church, we don't, that's not what we're called to be. We're called to be a people who, who wield the truth and love. And it, it doesn't mean that the truth is always palatable, but people can know that we love them as we give it and as we interact with them and as we pursue them, right? Like that we, we've got to find this line, and you are going to mess up on both sides. And there's grace there, right? That we are doing this together and we're striving to do this um, as, as Christ has called us to, as people who are choosing to love others or who are pursuing them and are looking to find this balance of love and truth that doesn't skip over the hard things that Scripture calls us to, but lets people know that they are cared for even as we say it. And so what John does then is he actually takes one specific issue that this church is dealing with and tries to show them how to work this, this, this combination out. Um, and so let's pick it up in verse 7. Man, I feel like I really like stepped out there, um, got a little sidetracked. All right. Verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. It's a hard hearing, a hard thing to say here. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. All right. So what's going on is there are are traveling preachers and teachers, and they are dependent upon the hospitality of the church. And so if you look in in Romans 13, if you look in 1 Timothy uh, Three, if you look in Titus 1, if you look in Hebrews 13, if you look in 1 Peter 4, there's just this call to be hospitable, 
right, to take care of one another. So much so that it's actually a requirement to be an elder in the church is that you are known for your hospitality. Now listen, we have taken hospitality to be solely, I bring my friends over. But what hospitality was in this day and age was it was literally the care of strangers. There were no hotels, right? The inns that, that did exist in the Roman world were places of ill repute that were dangerous, and so people would avoid them at all costs. And so often people would carry a letter with them from the city they've come from, somehow vouching for them with maybe the name or a family in the city that they're going to that might bring them in. And so hospitality was literally bringing in a stranger, knowing that when they leave, they're no longer a stranger, right? You're, you're making them a guest who's now a friend who thou will offer you sanctuary if you happen to be somewhere else. It was a necessary component of survival, not just a nicety. And so what's happening now are these itinerant teachers and missionaries are moving from city to city, and many are coming to encourage the church and speak and to move and, and to do these things. Others have seen that this is taking place, and they're like, well, I can just mooch off people. Or, even more so than that, they've got a false teaching, and they're looking to infiltrate the church. And so they're coming and they're calling the church, hey, be hospitable. I've got a word for you. Be hospitable. And knowing that this is what Jesus has taught, what the New Testament has taught. And then they've got this false teaching and this false word. And so when John starts to say, if they don't see Jesus as the Christ, they don't stay with you. This would have been a stark contrast to how they had been taught to view strangers. But what he's saying is this. There's, there's two parts to this real quick. The first is this. Look, many deceivers have gone out. So verse 8, watch yourselves. He's saying, church, you can be deceived. Be careful. Don't just assume that everything that's being taught is truth. You can be deceived. And second, he gives a very practical thing here. He says, I don't want you to let them in. Now, we have, to, we have to clarify what he's saying. What he's saying is, is he's like, don't let the leaders in. Don't let these who are propagating this in. He is not saying that you cannot be hospitable to someone who does not believe what you believe. Right? That would go against the very face of Scripture. We are called to be good neighbors. We are called to be hospitable to those who do not think, do not read, do not believe, do not pray like we do to invite them in, to have conversation, to trust that the Lord will do what only He can do in rescuing and transforming and in saving. We should be hospitable. You should have people who don't think like you around your table because we believe that we're on mission and that we're pursuing folks who are far from Jesus right now and that He will take His enemies and make them sons and daughters, make them friends. But what he is saying is, look, you cannot bring in those who are propagating this message to the world. He goes, because when you do, you're affirming their message. So listen, when you would come into a, a city and be brought into a home as a, as a stranger, what that family was saying is, is we vouch for this person. We vouch for what they're saying, what they're doing, what they're teaching. And so if you're now, if you're a Christian and you've brought in a false teacher who now is teaching in your community, you're saying this is what the church believes. And so he's saying you can't, you can't do that. He lets them know 
that this is not simply a, a message of, of miscommunication. This is a wicked thing. Listen, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, right? And the teaching is in verse 9. That whoever abides in Christ has God. Verse 10, anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house, nor give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works, and you are taking part by affirming the message. So this is where, as a church, right, we have to be careful. He is not saying anyone who doesn't believe in every little bit of minutia theology of you, any differences, kick them out. The issue is, is what do they say about Jesus? That is the issue. There are, there are things that you and I can disagree on in theology, and we're going to see each other in heaven. There are secondary and tertiary issues. The thing we cannot disagree on is Jesus. That he's the Christ. That he came in the flesh to rescue and to save us, bringing grace and mercy to those who desperately needed salvation. And what has happened, and, and John shows us this, he says, look, they have run ahead. And what he means Verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not remain, does not abide in the teachings of Christ, doesn't have God. They have said, we've got something new, and they have run past Jesus, and they have not stayed faithful to what he's taught, and they've got a new revelation and new knowledge. Listen, lots of people will talk to you about God, right? Because God can be nebulous. You start talking about Jesus, and lines start getting drawn, What do they think about Jesus? Who do they say he is? Right? We cannot be fooled into believing that, well, they talk about God, they pray to God, they love God, we're good. No, no, no. Who is Jesus to them? Do they follow him? Do they abide in his teachings? Do they remain in him? Are they looking to be conformed to him? Do they see him as the the God-man, the Redeemer, the Savior, our Reconciler? Or is he just a good dude? Had some good teachings. It's not the same. What do they say about Jesus? Paul says it like this in Galatians 1. Look, if someone brings to you a message contrary to this, like let them be accursed. Like you don't listen to them. I don't care if it's an apostle, if it's an angel, if it is not the message of Jesus as the Savior, you don't listen to it. So where do they stand on Jesus? And not just with their initial I want you to believe me, right? Because they're deceivers. But where do they really believe about Jesus? How does he really affect their lives? What John is saying is, church, it is not unity at all cost. It is unity around truth. And the truth is, is who is Jesus? And in that, that we love each other, that we pursue people. John is calling us to love one another and to be discerning. Listen, it is a tightrope, and we will fail at this occasionally, but that we would continue to try to be people who love well and speak truth well. John loves to draw two groups, and he's doing that here. It's like, look, these deceivers, they don't love Jesus, and if you let them in, they're going to deceive you. In Christ, we see perfect love and perfect truth. That is our mark. That is our standard. It's Him. And we want to abide in what He's teaching. Listen, we could, 
we could spend the rest of the day talking about specific teachings, heresies, religions, cults, all those type of things. Um, it's, a, it's a conversation for another day. Maybe it's a conversation you'll have in gospel community some this week. Church, the, the last thing I want to say, and then we'll be done. The reason we have to love one another is because we have an enemy, right? Who's looking to deceive you. And he typically doesn't walk in and say, well, I'm a deceiver, so follow me. He infiltrates. It's small. It's just a slight slight tweak, right, that leads in a far-off direction. Or it's just this incessant push from culture or from the world to say, that's not love. That's not love. What the church is saying is not love. It's not love. It's not love. It's not love. And you grow weary and you're finally like, fine, tell me what love is. Right? That there are many ways that we are attacked. And so we love one another and we remind one another of the truth because eternity, our salvation is staked on it. How do we see Jesus? Is he our rescuer, our savior, our everything? Or is he, he's okay, but we've got some knowledge that's run past him. That is deception. Church, the, the band is going to come back up. I'm going to pray for us. If you need someone to talk with, to pray with this morning, there'll be some men and women in the back of the room. But as we stand and as we sing to our king, that we would sing to the one who has made us right, right, who's put us at peace with God, has reconciled us, that we would sing to the one who knows us by name and has called us to follow after him. And this morning, if you're like, I don't know what I think about Jesus, because I only kind of ever talk about God, and let's talk about it. Like, right, let's have that conversation. Let me pray for us.